Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today, we are talking with immigration attorney Aaron Hall. Aaron is a partner and the director of Removal Defense, Litigation, and Family Immigration at Joseph and Hall Law Firm in Colorado. Welcome, Aaron, and thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Immigration law is, of course, extremely complex, but for someone who isn't versed in immigration, I have found that almost trying to figure out who does what can often feel just as confusing. And so for this episode, I wanted to just review some of the many acronyms for the U.S. departments and agencies that deal with immigration to explain who does what with immigration in the U.S. and how does it all work together. So starting generally, is there a single U.S. agency that deals primarily with immigration? There is not. It's um, spread out amongst a a number of agencies, and and it didn't used to be like that. Um, It used to be that Basically, all uh, of the immigration functions were housed in INS, and it's funny you'll still see on you know television shows or movies you'll still see uh, references even in current stuff to to INS, which is funny because it's been defunct for going on two decades now. There is no INS, but um, that's where it all used to be. And then after 9/11, um, the Department of Homeland Security was formed. So most of INS's functions ended up in various sub-agencies of the Department of Homeland Security, and uh, those went to principally uh, USCIS, ICE, and CBP. Department of Homeland Security is, of course, just referred to as DHS. Is that right in most media and everywhere? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then there used to be, they deconstructed it in response I guess, in response to 9-11? Yeah. Why was that related to immigration services? Well, um, the uh, and I'm, I'm not really sure why uh, they thought that having it within a new department would uh, be better. But, you know, the, the background to some of it is that um, some of the hijackers or maybe all of the hijackers on 9-11 had come in on various uh, non-immigrant visas and so uh, there was that tie-in to immigration services. And I think that what they wanted to do was have more, um, more seamless communication in theory between different functions so that it would be housed in a, in a new department that would have those functions, but also uh, other things. Um, one thing that I always think is interesting is that um, they, uh, I've seen results from a FOIA request, and I'm sorry that I can't remember who filed it or who got these, but they were basically the notes from Donald Rumsfeld when he was in the Bush administration. And this was before the Department of Homeland Security was was formed, but they were kicking around the name Homeland. And and before that, um, it really wasn't part of the American lexicon. Like nobody talked about the Homeland. And uh, Donald Rumsfeld at the time, his notes uh, are in response to somebody else saying he doesn't like the, f- the term homeland. He's not comfortable with it. And it sounds more more German than American. Huh. <laughs> so I thought that, that was funny because I, I agree that the, the homeland sounds kind of strange to me still after all these years. But um, 
but they went with it anyway. Yeah. Um, and so Department of Homeland Security, I think most people know, but just to make sure that we cover our bases, it does do much more besides immigration, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, they, they have their own, um, I think their own intelligence service. They have um, FEMA um, to respond to natural disasters and they, they do a lot of other things, but, um, but I think these days they're principally known for, um, and, and a lot of the focus uh, amongst the leadership has been on immigration functions. And who does DHS, as a broad organization, who do they report to? Well, they're, um, they're a cabinet-level department, so the secretary is a member of the president's cabinet, so really they, they just report to the president. Okay. Okay, so then you mentioned in within DHS, within the Department of Homeland Security, specific to immigration, we have USAIS, ICE, and CBP, and maybe let's just go through them one by one. So first, USCIS. What is it? (laughs) What does it stand for? And then what do they do as far as immigration is concerned? Yeah, so USCIS is uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And they're responsible for uh, benefits adjudications for things that are filed within the United States. So some of the um, most common examples, that would be like a green card application. If somebody's here and they qualify for a green card within the United States, then their application gets sent to USCIS who schedules the interview and decides whether the green card is granted. Also, um, like a application for citizenship through naturalization, that goes to USCIS, who schedules the interview in a local office and then adjudicates the application. Which means they, they're the ones that decide yes or no. Exactly. They either approve it or they deny it. Um, and there are... Uh, offices for USCIS in, in basically every uh, major city. And they have, uh, last I checked, I think nearly 20,000 employees and contractors. So it's a it's a big operation. Um, and despite having that many employees and contractors, the wait times for these benefits uh, adjudications are really long. So uh, for a green card application, it's not uncommon for it to take a year to two years after filing for, for it to get the decisions. And they're there are things that take much longer than that as well. And so in, in a lot of our previous episodes, we've tried to talk about some of those different types of visas and benefits that people can apply for. So do pretty much all of those types of visas, like the you mentioned green cards, so maybe family-based visas, the employment-based visas, all of those go through this or this piece of DHS? Well, most of them have at least some portion of the application that starts in USCIS. So, um, for example, if it's a family-based petition, then there's a visa petition that's filed with USCIS. But after that, um, if the beneficiary, if the person applying for the green card is within the United States, then USCIS adjudicates the whole thing. But if they're applying for a visa from abroad, if they're trying to, to move here from a foreign country, then it actually goes to the Department of State. And then the consular official at the uh, consulate abroad is the one who actually makes the decision. So it depends on where the person who's applying for the benefit is. Interesting. But those consulars would be U.S. employed, correct? Yes, yes. They're, they're at uh, American embassies and consulates that are situated abroad. Okay. So generally, USAS within Department of Homeland Security takes those applications 
if someone's in the U.S., they are the ones that make the decisions. They schedule all the interviews prior to that. And that's sort of their general function. Exactly. Okay, great. So then let's move on more to, I think most people have heard or hear in the news most frequently about ICE and CBP. Let's talk about those now. So what are they? I assume they're the basic enforcement agencies, but maybe you can talk about the difference between the two specifically and sure. we can kind of go into some of the details. No, that's right. I mean, the ICE and CBP are, are really the two uh, enforcement arms uh, for immigration uh, in the United States within the Department of Homeland Security. So ICE is, is, is really concentrated on interior enforcement. Um, that means that ICE officers, um, and it's called ICE ERO, uh, Enforcement and Removal Operations, they're the ones that would be arresting non-citizens or, or placing them into removal proceedings and then actually um, deporting people if they get uh, an uh, order of removal from a judge or otherwise. And then ICE also has uh, Homeland Security investigations, um, and they are uh, investigating crimes, um, often with some kind of nexus to immigration. And then uh, they also have the Office of the Principal Legal Advisor. Those are attorneys. Um, and so when a non-citizen is placed in removal proceedings in an immigration court, the ICE attorneys uh, are in this sub-office called OPLA, or again, Office of the Principal Legal Advisor, and they serve as, as basically the prosecutors who are, who are generally trying to get uh, a judge to issue an order of removal. So that's all housed within ICE. And now CBP is um, Customs and Border Protection, and they are concentrated on ports of entry into the United States and uh, along the borders to the United States. By ports of entry, I mean airports, um, seaports, um, the land land ports of entry. So, so places where you present a visa if you're uh, crossing on the land border, either from um, Canada or or Mexico, and then also the the border patrol, which is within CBP. They uh, are responsible for for places that are between ports of entry uh, on the northern and, and southern borders. And so Border Patrol is different from CBP. It's a, or they're a part, a part of, of CBP. CBP. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But not the same thing, even though the acronym would be the same. It's not the same thing. Exactly. Okay. And so what is their basic function on the border? Basically the same as ICE or a little bit different? Well, it's a little bit different because ICE is, is looking at people who are already here in general and they're, they're deciding... Um, whether they think that that person is subject to, to removal or deportation from the United States, and then actually trying to deport or remove them, usually after an immigration court proceeding. Um, CBP is, on the other hand, they're not looking at people who are already here. They're looking at people who are trying to enter the country. And so their role is to, to make sure that people have the proper documentation. So if they need a visa, they look at their visa paperwork. Um, they'll question people to, to make sure that their uh, purpose for entry into the United States is consistent with the type of visa that they're presenting. And then when people are entering without a visa, they, their role is um, to stop them and sometimes uh, deport them, uh, or if they have uh, a fear of re removal to their uh, home country, they, they are supposed to facilitate um, 
an interview with an asylum officer to decide uh, whether there's a case for asylum. Okay. Um, I have questions about each of them, but so maybe with ICE first, it's really interesting to me that the people who are apprehending or arresting people within the U.S. Would, are the same people that are also doing the prosecution. There isn't, I mean, it seems like there could very easily be a lot of problems with that, like just in terms of um, conflict of interest, I would think. Is is that something that is an issue? Yeah, well, that um, the uh, way that it works is that the um, so say it's not always ICE who puts somebody into removal proceedings, which gets a little bit confusing. Sometimes it is actually USCIS, but, um, but in general, let's say ICE puts somebody into removal proceedings. And then ICE is also, uh, the agency that has the prosecutors who are trying to get the removal order. What's, uh, what's interesting and, and aggravating, uh, from my point of view is that, um, the immigration judges and the courts, uh, are all. Uh, housed within the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice itself is a law enforcement uh, agency. Um, So we have a law enforcement agency putting people into removal proceedings and then a law enforcement agency, not a court, even though we call them immigration courts, it's not actually a court. It's a law enforcement agency who reports to the attorney general deciding whether whether a person is removable or whether they should be um, given some kind of relief from removal, whether that's asylum or, or any other uh, way that they have to apply to stay in the United States under the law. Interesting. And then as far as CBP goes, you said they would be in contact, the first contact generally with people who are trying to enter, making sure people either have the proper documentation and if they don't potentially overseeing their deportation or they should be facilitating asylum. So how does can you just talk a little bit about that, how that works? Sure. So um, if, if somebody doesn't have the right documentation to enter, the CBP officers usually have a choice. They can either do what's called an expedited removal, which means uh, an order of deportation without ever having to see a judge, or they can allow the person to withdraw their application for, for admission and basically get on the next flight home or, or just turn around and go back. Um, and that's uh, a lot of that is in the discretion of the of the CBP officer who's handling the case. Um, but where where somebody uh, comes in and, and says, you know, I have a I have a fear of return to my country because I think I'm going to be persecuted. <clears throat> the law says that 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 person should be able to apply for asylum, and it does not matter whether they uh, presented themselves at an airport or or a port of entry or if they, uh, they crossed the border between ports of entry and, and were caught um, doing that. And a lot of times, as an aside, they're, they're, it's kind of a misnomer to say they were caught. Uh, a lot of people are crossing the border and, and searching out CBP officers or border patrol uh, officers to, to be able to um, express that they want to apply for asylum. But once they do that, they, they're entitled under the law to, to apply for asylum. And uh, the way that it works is the um, CBP officers are supposed to facilitate an interview with an asylum officer. And then the asylum officer um, has the first crack at determining whether uh, they have a viable, a potentially viable uh, claim uh, because they will be persecuted on their, on their return to a home country. And that, um, if so, then, then it gets um, forwarded on to an immigration judge who will have hearings about that and decide whether their, their application can be granted. Okay. 
And one last thing. So CBP, when we, we did an episode all about detention and we learned CBP generally has like holding facilities that they can keep people for sh- supposed to be short term. And then ICE generally is in charge of managing the larger detention fil- facilities, which are longer term. That's correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. Can you talk a little bit like how big are each of these agencies? Um, like who does their training? I assume it sounds like they should have somewhat similar, but also different training. Like who, who oversees each of them? If there are complaints about like a detention or if somebody feels like they should have been granted asylum, but were just turned away. Can you talk a little bit about who, who oversees all of this happening yeah. in their training? Yeah, I mean, so the, you know, as far as the size of the agencies, these are, these are massive. Um, uh, I think ICE is something like 20,000 um, employees and CBP is even much bigger than that. It's now up to 58,000. Um, and uh, it's interesting because uh, I saw a statistic recently, and I'm going to get it wrong, uh, but to the best of my memory, it said it was something like per uh, per CBP officer or per uh, Border Patrol officer, I think more specifically, they average something like somewhere between one and two uh, arrests per, per month, I think it was. So they have just a lot of personnel. Um, so they're, they're big, big agencies. Um, they handle their own training. So uh, CBP officers are trained by the agency and their training is going to be a little bit different than ICE uh, in that they have specific training um, or they should have specific training on, on these procedures about how to, to evaluate people's um, uh, visas and their, uh, their purposes for entry as well as, um, as how to handle it when somebody says that they'll have a, a fear of persecution. Um, whereas ICE, uh, again, is more about looking at people who are already here in the United States. And so their training is, is different in that way. But, um, you know, what you, the, the question about what happens when, when somebody has a complaint um, is a good one, because a lot of times there's not really a great way to get redress for a complaint. Um, each agency is going to be accountable ultimately um, to, well, in one way to the Department of Homeland Security Office of the Inspector General, um, and reports can be made there, and the, the Inspector General can can initiate an investigation about, um, for example, detention facilities or, or medical um, medical care within detention facilities, and that does happen, and it happens regularly. But those are more you know large scale systemic um, complaints that get investigated. Um, to get a complaint investigated for for an individual, um, I think is more difficult, and and people uh, may be left without much re- recourse other than you know uh, contacting that officer's supervisor, and ultimately if there's some kind of legal claim, potentially uh, trying to to file a suit um, against the uh, agency for for violating somebody's rights. Yeah, it seems like it would be such a large responsibility to be able to say, yes, you can come in and potentially find some security in the United States from persecution or no, sorry, you're going back to where you came from without any sort of help, like in that process, potentially like at that time, right? I assume when somebody comes in contact with CBP, maybe nobody already is in contact with a lawyer at that point. <laughs> like, And so for people right. to be able to know what 
what is done appropriately or not would probably be almost unknown. Is that somewhat I think that's accurate? That's right. And um, the way that the, the law um, attempts to handle that is by making the the burden that somebody has to show at the initial stage is a lot less than they have to show at a final stage to get an approval. So for example, at an initial stage, when they're first being interviewed, it can just be um, a reasonable fear or a credible fear of persecution. And that, that uh, later gets, uh, gets uh, passed on to an immigration judge who, who has to decide whether it's more likely than not that they'll be that they qualify for relief or, or in the case of asylum, whether the standard is whether there's a, a 10% chance that they'll be persecuted on a protected ground. So that's the way it tries to set it up. But in practice, um, obviously politics gets gets involved and, and these um, agencies are all ultimately um, somewhat at the whims of, of whoever's president at the time. And um, so there has been a lot of pressure uh, under the Trump administration to just reje- reject people uh, outright and not even adjudicate their asylum claims. And the last uh, four years has basically been a story of of uh, the Trump administration trying uh, over and over again to find a way to not allow people to have their asylum claims heard. So they've, by regulation, created uh, all kinds of bars to asylum and said some people will be object- rejected outright or or people should have their asylum claims adjudicated while they wait in Mexico or by Guatemala or by El Salvador. Um, and um, the, the kind of latest iteration of this and the one that's still most uh, relevant now is uh, under actually a, a health provision, not an immigration pr- provision called Title 42. And that allows uh, people to be just rejected outright without any chance to hear, um, to have anybody hear their claim for asylum based on a public health emergency. So that was uh, implemented by the Trump administration, but it continues under the Biden administration under um, under the, what I would call a pretext of, uh, of COVID concerns, saying that uh, that if people were processed and allowed to, to, to have their claims heard, that it's some kind of public health danger um, to the United States. All the while, um, all kinds of people are entering from from all kinds of countries around the world um, on visas, and, and there's much less concern about that. But uh, for some reason, the the people who want asylum are, are deemed to be too dangerous to even have their claims heard. So let's continue with these um, immigration functions in the government. Another, I mean, huge piece of immigration, we've mentioned it before, is immigration court. And so when people send in an application or they have a claim to asylum, most of the time, or at least all the asylum asylum claims have to go through the court process, correct? Yes, although that, it depends. So depending on, if somebody's already here, say they've entered on a on a visitor's visa or something, and then they apply for asylum, actually the USCIS can, can have the first crack at it, and they can actually grant the asylum application. Okay. But in general, yeah, the, the immigration judge is the uh, person who, who's going to make the decision on an asylum application. And you had already mentioned the immig- immigration court and the judges within that, they aren't part of the Department of Homeland Security. They're separate from that in the Department of Justice. So just for those of us whose um, government is maybe a little shaky, where does that fit into sort of our, our government generally? Yeah. So the Department of Justice is another cabinet level agency, and it's our law enforcement agency. So that's um, that's where the FBI sits. 
um, and the attorney general oversees the FBI. Um, the Department of Justice handles all of the litigation. When the U.S. government is sued, the Department of Justice provides the attorneys that are going to defend the United States. So the the uh, Department of Justice, um, through the attorney general, really is subject to the law enforcement uh, posture of, of the president. The president will appoint a an attorney general who wants to implement the president's priorities, and then the attorney general will, will go ahead and do that. And, and when it comes to immigration, that's an uh, incredible power because the attorney general is allowed to, to make law through decisions uh, that, they, um, that they issue that are binding on immigration judges. And so, for example, the attorney generals under, under President Trump um, issued a number of decisions which uh, drastically restricted the ability of people to apply for um, asylum and qualify for asylum, um, as well as uh, all kinds of other things that, uh, that made relief from removal or being able to stay when they're in immigration court proceedings um, much harder. And that all comes from the attorney general where the immigration courts and the Board of Immigration Appeals is, is housed. And so on a, on a practical level, does that mean there's some case happening where someone's making a claim to asylum or whatever it might be, and the attorney general can step in and make that decision on for the judge in that case, and then that becomes precedent? Is that sort of how that would work? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the attorney general sees a, a case that an immigration judge has made a decision on, um, and it can be... Um, at the Board of Immigration Appeals or the Board of Immigration Appeals may have just made a decision and the Attorney General steps in and says, actually, I'd like to certify this case to myself. I'm gonna make a new decision that uh, that affects not only this individual uh, whose case is at issue here, but what I say here is going to become the law, which is binding on uh, immigration judges and, and, and all kinds of immigration officials throughout the land uh, in, in similar circumstances. Without needing to go through Congress. Without needing to go through Congress, exactly. Wow. And within immigration court, I mean, we I feel like if you know, listen to anything about immigration, you know that there's just a huge backlog. That's correct. How many judges are there? I think we heard there aren't necessarily immigration courts in, in every major city, right? Or are they kind of spread out? No, not quite. And um, I want to say that there are maybe 50 immigration courts um, and there are um, in the neighborhood of 500 immigration judges um, with a pending backlog of, I believe, like 1.3 million pending cases. Okay. And so then that's separate. That's in the Department of Justice. I'm vaguely familiar with the term EOIR. Can you Uh talk about what is that exactly? What, are they, what, is it, what is it? What does it do as far as immigration is concerned? Yeah, the EOIR is the Executive Office for Immigration Review. But what it actually is, it, it, it's the immigration court system. Um, that's the name oh, okay. of the sub-agency within the Department of Justice. So that includes the immigration courts themselves. So, for example, um, immigration judges and and all the immigration court staff, they are EOIR employees. Um, And it also includes the Board of Immigration Appeals. So if a a decision of an immigration judge is appealed, 
the appeal goes to the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is also within EOIR, within the Department of Justice. Okay. There's, again, that potential for that conflict of interest. If the same person is in charge of both, then your appeal might not be as um, as considered as maybe it would be by another organization. <laughs> is that... Yeah, no, that, is that how all our courts work <laughs> or is it just uh, immigration? No, it's not. You know, the, um, the UIR employees, the attorneys who are referred to as immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeals members, they're, they're all ultimately accountable to, to the, their bosses in the Department of Justice. And so the attorney general or, or the, the political appointees at EOIR or, or at the Department of Justice who, who have to deal with immigration, They'll, they'll set some things like um, quotas on how many cases a, a immigration judge is required to, um, to decide every year. And uh, they tried to set that at, um, I think, 700 um, per year during the last administration. Now, these, these court hearings, they, they can typically take three to four hours each. And then the immigration judge has to review a long evidentiary record. It's often hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, and then uh, often issue a research and issue a written decision. When you put it together with all that time in court, all that uh, the time that they should be spending reviewing the record and, and making well-reasoned decisions, it's just not possible. But the, the quotas and those types of things to try to speed up adjudications, they come from um, the political appointees up at the Department of Justice. Why? Because the posture coming from the um, administration was, we want to speed this up no matter what, because we want enforcement, we want deportations. And they know that, um, that a lot of these cases um, will end in orders of removal, which will allow people to be deported. So they're okay sacrificing quality and, um, and due process as long as it goes faster. And again, yeah, that all comes from from uh, political influence, which uh, ideally should not be part of courts. Now, to some extent, it, it is in all courts. I don't think you can ever separate um, politics from from the courts. But at least in in what we think of as courts, they're within a judicial branch, and they are not. Uh, the judges are not um, held accountable for what their decisions look like, who they're ruling for, or how fast they're ruling. Okay. So those are the main pieces of under the Department of Justice. Is that about cover it? Mostly yeah, the yeah. courts. Okay. Um, again, in one of our previous episodes, when we talked a bit about unaccompanied minors coming and we learned that they tend to become the responsibility of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So none of the other immigration agencies that we've mentioned so far have the responsibility to take care of unaccompanied minors where does that office, where is that housed? How does that agency fit in? And is that sort of their sole immigration piece? Yeah, I know that um, that's, that comes not out of the Department of Homeland Security. That's from the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and like you said, it's the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So they do uh, handle the care of unaccompanied minors. They also have all kinds of programs to, um, to help in the resettlement of, of refugees who, who move to the country uh, as refugees and, and need um, help getting um, set up in the communities that they move to and, and having some services uh, ready for them to help in their resettlement. So that all of that stuff is not in the Department of Homeland Security, but in 
uh, Health and Human Services. And so for those unaccompanied minors who are either trying to claim asylum or some other visa for being here, so the Office of Refugee Resettlement would just work really closely with USCIS in that case, or do they handle those cases as well? No, the Office of Re- Refugee Resettlement um, is, is really concerned with their their housing, where they are. But okay. whatever agency uh, would decide their immigration benefit is still uh, going to be totally separate. So in some cases, that might be USCIS. In other cases, it's still the immigration courts. So they have to uh, either go to an immigration court or, or uh, be taken to a, an immigration court to handle their claims while the Office of uh, Refugee Resettlement houses them. Okay. Are there other, I mean, are there other pieces that we're missing here as far as the government's involvement in immigration? It seems like generally the huge piece is under the Department of Homeland Security where we have USCIS taking the applications, deciding whether or not people have a right to be here or must be, must leave. We have the enforcement pieces as part of that. And then with the Department of Justice, we have the courts and then this Office of Refugee Resettlement concerned with the housing of minor immigrants, but also all of the refugee pieces under them. Who else is there or, or what, what else are we missing? Yeah. Who, where, what other pieces of the alphabet soup are missing? Um, you know, uh, Department of Labor has a role in immigration. Um, so a lot of employment-based immigration benefits require labor certifications to show things like that the non-citizen would be paid at least the prevailing wage, wouldn't have a negative impact on the labor market, or or uh, for some applications, they have to show that a U.S. worker is not qualified and willing to take the position. So the Department of Labor decides decides those labor certifications for those kinds of applications. So they have a role. And then I think the big one that we haven't talk, talked about much is, is the Department of State, because visas uh, are issued abroad at consulates, at U.S. consulates abroad. And so they have a major role in, um, in scheduling interviews at the consulates and, and making decisions about whether people will get immigrant visas or non-immigrant visas. Immigrant visas mean that uh, the, the person is coming to stay forever and they will be a permanent resident as soon as they enter. Non-immigrant visas are temporary. Um, so they're staying for a certain amount of time uh, to do work or, or travel or whatever the case may be. Uh, but it's the Department of State who makes those decisions for people looking to come from abroad. Okay. So generally when people, I feel like so much of the news is consumed right now with the border and people who are just coming to the border and and legally for people who are seeking asylum, that's the only way for them to do it, right? They can't, they can't apply at a consulate. They have to literally come to the border or a port of entry without previous documentation in order to claim asylum. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and, it's a, it's uh, often not understood, but it, but it's correct. There's no there's no way to to go to the the consulate in your home country, the U.S. consulate, and apply for asylum. It just doesn't work like that. So you have to apply for asylum from from here within the United States. You can uh, seek to become a refugee from outside the country, but that goes uh, through the UN. And um, once people are decided, it's decided that you can. Uh, qualify as a refugee, then the U.S. or another country decides that they are willing to, to take you in as a refugee. But there's no way to apply for asylum from abroad. Okay. And then all basically all the other types, if you're not already here, you would do that 
through the Department of State at one of your the U.S. consulates in your home country where you would maybe apply to be unified with family or whatever it might be or take a job. Yeah, that's exactly right. One wrap it up question I have is, do the agencies, do they work well together? I imagine just, I think people's kind of perception of government is that it's highly inefficient, <laughs> whether or not that's valid in all areas of government. But I think generally people feel like when government charges, there's lots of delays, there's like lots of mis- miscommunication. Is that problematic in kind of the immigration process? Is there a movement to have to like return to a more centralized agency for immigration or not really? Um, I don't think that there that I know of that there's there's much of a movement, but I would say that um, that oftentimes the agencies do not work well together. Uh, there are often huge delays between a case being sent from one agency, say USCIS, to to another agency, say the Department of State, to, to move an immigrant visa application along. And just in general, even beyond the um, the question of um, agencies working well together, just the delays endemic in every part of the system from the immigration courts to an application with to USCIS for a work permit to an application for an immigrant visa with the Department of State, everything right now is just taking so, so long. Um, talking about sometimes uh, years for applications that should be pretty straightforward and simple. And so it's um, it's a it's a problem that uh, that a lot of us in the immigration space are grappling with, and it's forcing us to spend a lot of time um, suing over it and trying to get uh, trying to get them to to move things along because it's just um, it's really not an acceptable amount of time that people have to wait just to have their applications decided. Okay, well, Aaron, thank you so much for reviewing all this with us. For me, it was really helpful just to kind of get a sense of all the different moving pieces in in immigration. I think it's easy to read an article and think like, oh, well, that should be easy. Or it's obviously the other person who's doing it wrong. But when you kind of take a, you know, mile high view of of what's happening, you can see that there's just a lot more pieces involved than I think people would initially assume. So thanks for taking time and just walking us through each of those different pieces. If people want to learn more or follow you, where can they, where can they do that? Our website has a lot of this kind of information on it, and it's called immigrationissues.com. And then uh, I have a Twitter account. It's mlawachall. And I think that's about it. Um, but uh, I definitely enjoyed talking it through with you. When I think only when I stopped to, to, to try to talk through all these different parts, <laughs> all these different agencies, and sometimes that's when I stop, back, step back, and think about how uh, how insane it can be. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, if I if I think like that as an immigration lawyer who who works in this space and and, and does this for a full time uh, living, then uh, I just imagine the people who are trying to navigate it on their own um, and how difficult right. it, it, it can be, or, or sometimes impossible it can be. So, thanks for having me on to to talk it through. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration.